Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday the 10th of November and I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in today's show, we're going to be looking at baseload power and bringing you a taster of one of Foresight's latest deep dive articles. So do stay tuned for that. First up, though, let's take a look at some of the major climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. Germany's government has decided to grant industry 28 billion euros in tax subsidies between now and 2028, as Berlin unveiled its latest attempt to shield struggling manufacturers from high energy prices. The government had flirted with the idea of imposing a set electricity price for industry, but has instead gone with the subsidy option. The level of tax will drop to the very minimum allowed by European competition rules, but it is still likely to irk officials in Brussels, who have already criticised Germany for being all too willing to try and solve its problems by resorting to massive state aid packages. An association representing some of Germany's most energy-intensive firms said it still would not be enough to get them out of the emergency care unit. European Union negotiators struck a late-night deal on a new law aimed at restoring nature. Officials from the European Council, Commission and Parliament hashed out an agreement in a closed-doors meeting. EU countries will have to restore 30% of habitats covered by the new law by 2030, and 90% of them by 2050. Peatlands in particular will need to be looked after, while there will also be an emergency break that can be activated if farmers are struggling to keep up with the law's demands. This latter point was a key win for Europe's Conservatives, who stoked controversy earlier this year by attempting to block the Parliament's internal agreement on the law. They were eventually outvoted by a progressive block of lawmakers. More than 60 countries are on board with a global pledge to triple renewable energy capacity and ditch coal power, Reuters has reported. The pledge, which is set to be the headline outcome of the COP summit in Abu Dhabi later this month, will also include an objective that will see its signatories try to double annual energy efficiency rates by 2030. The EU and US-led initiative is also trying to get China and India to sign up to the pact, with talks reportedly at an advanced stage. Definitely one to watch in the coming weeks. Europe's top climate official, Wopke Herkstra, will meet his Chinese counterpart in Beijing next week as pre-COP powwows ramp up. It will be Herkstra's first major international tête-à-tête since he took over the job from fellow Dutchman Franz Timmermans last month. For more on how Herkstra got the job, Check out the link in the show notes. The United States has launched the snappily titled Project Phoenix, an ambitious scheme aimed at helping Central and Eastern European countries in particular convert coal power plants into facilities that can host small modular nuclear reactors, or SMRs. Czechia, Poland and Slovakia are the first three countries selected for the programme, which will kick off with feasibility studies and a technical assistance stage. The US insists that SMRs are perfectly suited to replace coal power plants, as they could provide round-the-clock baseload power. Check the show notes for more details from the US Department of Energy. SMRs might be good enough for Europe, but they aren't good enough for the state of Utah, apparently 
an SMR project meant to deliver 462 megawatts of emission-free power, has been thrown on the scrap heap, after some of the utilities that had agreed to buy electricity from it were spooked by cost overruns, delays, and an increase in the strike price. Initially slated for 2026, it was pushed back to 2029, while the target price of $58 per megawatt hour was revised to $89. The Utah project was on track to be the US's first commercial scale SMR, and the company running it, NewScale, is the only firm with a regulator certified reactor design. NewScale and the Department of Energy both insist that progress made during the project's lifetime will be invaluable for future ventures. The state of Michigan, meanwhile, passed one of the country's most ambitious clean energy bills, which will obligate the state's power grid to be completely decarbonized by 2040. By 2034, 60% of power must be provided by solar, wind, and other renewables. The remaining 40% can be filled by nuclear power and gas plants outfitted with carbon capture systems with a 90% success rate. This latter point has angered environmental groups who wanted the bill to set a target for a 100% renewable rate by 2035. Indonesia has inaugurated one of the biggest clean energy projects of its kind in the world. A floating solar power plant capable of generating 145 megawatts of green power has been built on a reservoir a couple of hundred kilometers from the Indonesian capital, Jakarta. It only covers 4% of the reservoir's surface, and regulations permit up to 20% to be covered, meaning the project could generate 1,000 megawatts once fully expanded. For more on what Indonesia is doing to go green, and how the rest of the world is trying to help, check out Wednesday's episode of The Jolt. There's a link in the show notes. And Australia has signed a landmark climate and security pact with the Pacific island nation of Tuvalu, the world's fourth smallest country. Tuvalu has taken a leading role in international climate diplomacy in recent years, as its very existence is threatened by climate breakdown and rising sea levels. Australia has agreed to create a special visa for Tuvalu citizens so that they can relocate with ease as climate change worsens. Australia will also provide economic assistance for land reclamation projects, as well as providing help if there are any humanitarian disasters. In return, Tuvalu will consult with Australia before signing any security or defence pacts with other countries, in what is a rather overt bid to counter China's influence in the Pacific. Both the Australian and Tuvalu governments now need to approve this new treaty. That's it for the news, now let's get into the story of the moment. In most discussions about clean energy, in particular renewable power, you're going to hear the word baseload come up. Most of you listening to this probably know what that is and why maintaining baseload supply has been the main objective of most energy policies around the world for quite some time. But the concept of what is baseload and whether it is even needed anymore have been called into question as energy systems change and we slowly but surely move away from fossil fuels towards more and more renewables. That shift is not without its problems, though. 
We've actually got something a little bit different for you on today's Jolt. I managed to catch up with my colleague, Jason Dane, who has just published a deep dive article on this very issue. Uh, so we're going to hear a little bit more about the topic and get into a bit of the story behind the story. Uh, so Jason, uh, what can people expect to learn from this article? So I think most listeners will already be aware of a thing called the duck curve, and that's uh, it, it describes a kind of a, a graph of, of daily uh, electricity demand on an average grid, but with two, two curves. So one is the actual demand curve, and then you have the demand curve minus the amount of demand which is, which is covered by solar energy. So it's a bit difficult to imagine this uh, in audio, but if you if you think about the demand curve, it goes up during the day, uh, then there's a bit of a peak in the evening and it goes down at night time. During the day, particularly in places where there's a lot of solar power, what we see is that from the morning onwards, the amount of solar on the grid starts to eat into what uh, what's covered by other generation. So you sort of have this U-shaped curve coming out underneath the demand curve, which is covered by solar. And to the people who first discovered this in the grid operator in California, it sort of looked like this U-shape uh, underneath the the demand curve was was a bit like a the shape of a duck, and it's become more accentuated. Uh, it's quite often um, regularly commented uh, phenomena in in places where there's quite a lot of solar. So, is this duck curve going to create problems for the energy transition? You have this duck curve, and that's been mentioned and noted on quite for quite some time now. But what's happened recently, and and I guess what what this story is all about, is that uh, there's a, a chap in France, uh, Jérôme uh, Guillet. He's a um, a renewable energy financier and he runs a, a blog called Jérôme à Paris which I would recommend to uh, any listeners out there and he pointed out that this duck curve was eating into the areas of, of generation which have typically been occupied by what's called baseload. Now baseload are these large thermal plants that run 24-7 and they're there to cover the minimum amount of demand at all times. So if you think about average demand in a community, there's always going to be some lights on, there's always going to be something sucking electricity off the grid. And so the best way to deal with that historically has been to have things like big coal plants or big nuclear power plants just running full pelt the whole time covering that amount. What we're seeing in, in places where there's a lot of solar on the grid, so think California and now places around the Mediterranean in Europe, for instance, uh, is that in the daytime, we have solar actually pretty much covering all demand. So during the middle of the day, they, you really don't need that, that base load any longer. This is important because on the one hand, it means that coal-fired plants are no longer used or needed throughout the day. The problem here is that it also affects the economics of nuclear power plants. And in 2022, nuclear generation provided 9.2% of all the electricity used in the world. And bear in mind, this is electricity, which is zero carbon. And these nuclear power plants, they're designed to work day in, day out at a steady rate. They don't ramp up and down easily. If you have to ramp them up and down, the economics go out the window, and it means that they're, they're, they're really not very viable. If you look at a lot of European markets, and certainly Western markets, North America as well, 
Nuclear is already having a problem with its economics. It's it's not very viable. Uh, and in, for instance, in places like the United States, they've been closing down nuclear power plants because they can't compete against gas. So what this means is that we're already seeing this almost a tenth of, of, of a generation under threat in many of its key markets. And now we have this added challenge that solar power is coming along and effectively pushing it out of the merit order, uh, certainly in the summer, for instance. So the implication is actually quite... Uh, it's quite worrying if you're really concerned about the amount of low power, uh, low carbon generation on the grid, because for a start, the prospects for new nuclear power, which are already very shaky in many markets, are looking even more shaky. And on top of that, the economics of existing power plants, uh, nuclear power plants, I wouldn't say they're under threat, but there is a question mark over what you do with that power, because you can't switch these things up and down during the day. So so that's really what the article's about. And I think why it's a, a pretty big deal and, and why people would be interested in reading about it. I really found the article a really good read, read because duck curve is one of those terminologies that you know you hear events or from speakers and things, and it used to be something that I would pretend to know what it was, um, and then kind of figured it out. And but that this article has really explained, I think, in a very you know real world um, examples what it means and actually the implications of it. What kind of you know from the people you talk to for this, what kind of timelines are we talking about it being? A problem especially in europe you know you said about it maybe being an issue in spain and you know portugal or places is it something that people are really starting to prepare for or think about well you know do we need to buy a battery do we need to shut down nuclear or you know what what's what are people thinking about that well it varies very much by market as you'd imagine so obviously the duck curve at the moment is is greatest where there is lots of solar power and so think uh, Germany, for instance, think obviously Mediterranean countries such as Spain, so the Iberian Peninsula in general. These are areas which have, in Germany, the duck curve is not such an issue because they're phasing out nuclear anyway. So, so that threat to nuclear is not a problem. Um, but in Spain, they still have a fair number of nuclear power plants. They are, many of them are coming up to the end of their useful life, but they're still there. They're still providing zero carbon power. And so in Spain, there are already times uh, during the day when there is uh, the, the, the value, if you like, of electricity on the grid is zero because it's all being covered by solar with zero marginal cost. So the, so the economic case for keeping a nuclear power plant going is pretty much already uh, going down the pan. And um, certainly I spoke to uh, a, a chap at Aliasoft, which is a Barcelona-based forecasting agency, and they said that they don't really see much of a future for, for nuclear power any longer in Spain. A, a case which is probably worth noting is France, which in terms of its nuclear, it has a very large nuclear fleet. Because of that, their nuclear power stations have been designed to go beyond baseload because they've got so much nuclear that quite often they're not just powering baseload, the basic that you need on the grid, but they're also kind of trying to follow the peaks and, and troughs. So the people at EDF, the uh, French uh, utility, reckon that their power plants, their nuclear power plants, are capable of this load following, which would be critical as you have more solar on the grid. So they think, they, they think their own um, nuclear power plants will be able to adapt. And I think they're talking there of, of having a mixture of renewables and nuclear and energy storage so that when solar comes onto the system, they can use storage and use some flexibility to capture that value and maybe feed it back to the grid later on. At the same time, maybe play with, with demand response to sort of 
help make sure that any additional uh, excess uh, free uh, renewable energy, as it were, is soaked up into the system. So, so they think it's not going to be a problem. Well, it's a really fantastic piece, Jason. I obviously recommend everyone who's listening to to read it. What else have you got coming up in the pipeline for Foresight? What should we what should we be looking out for? Well, continuing with the theme of how to get future grids to work efficiently, I've been uh, also researching a piece on hybrid power plants, and the uh, the the sort of story here really is that, as I said earlier, solar only produces during the day, and that means that if you've got a solar plant with a grid connection, that grid connection isn't doing much at night. So one of the things that hybrid power plants are hoping to do is to combine the the solar generation profile with other types of renewables. So for instance, instance wind which may be um, present at night and that way you can use the grid connection a bit more you you don't have to go through so much permitting and it's best a way of improving the efficiency of the renewable energy rollout there will obviously be a link to jason's article in the show notes so please do check it out if you haven't already and look out for that other piece on hybrid projects as well Many thanks for joining me for today's Jolt. I'll be back next week on Monday for much more of the same bite-sized news updates and a look at the story of the moment. I hope you can join me. In the meantime, obviously check out the article on Base Low Power, catch up with the latest What Matters episode, and stay tuned for next week's edition of The Policy Dispatch, which will be all about Moldova. You can listen to these episodes either on the website, in-app, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well. You've only got a short window in which to sign up, so please do so if you are interested. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the job possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the Jolt. Jolt.